0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Let's read the first seven verses, and then we'll kind of dig into the chapter. Great story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Starting in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the justices and the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that, the king, that king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors of the treasurers and the justices and the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages All the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. They all cheered. Yeah. All right, this is a great story and an uh, interesting start. Right? So before we jump into the actual passage, um, great reminder here, uh, we just finished looking at Peter not too long ago, and Peter tells us, warns us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. And there's really no doubt that uh, when Peter wrote those words, I'm sure he was picturing this very story, the fiery trial. And certainly, um, life, as we know, is not always easy. And there's no promise in Scripture that it, that it will be. Right? Life oftentimes has its fiery trials, its difficulties and its challenges, right? And so this is a very relevant story as we all face our own fiery furnaces and difficulties. Uh, And what's what's remarkable about Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, who we'll get to in a minute, is that they face this fiery trial with incredible faith and uh, all-out wholehearted devotion to God. right? And and, uh, really for us, if we want to walk with Christ in a way that is honoring to him, those are the two things we must have. Faith in him and a wholehearted devotion to him, even in the face of danger and death. And that's what these guys demonstrate. So how did they get there? Where did this kind of faith come from? And how is it they were able, as probably 18 or 19-year-old young men, uh, maybe 20 at the most, how were they able to face death, face this fiery trial with such conviction and determination? And how can we do the same thing? And I've titled this message, uh, Our God is Able. And uh, so we'll see kind of how that ties in in a minute as well. We'll start off with the, looking at the beginning, kind of setting up the story, which I just read at the beginning. Um, and what we see here is that King Nebuchadnezzar is um, trying to literally orchestrate worship, right? He wants to have this orchestrated, uh, very scripted and very uh, planned worship celebration, this worship service, right? And so uh, first off, in order to uh, worship, you need to have something to worship, right? Something to celebrate. And so we see that uh, says King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and breadth 6 cubits and he set it up on the plains of Dura in the province of Babylon. All right, So uh, the king uh, makes this 90 feet tall, nine, uh, uh, 9 feet wide, or 27 meters if you think more in meters, 27 meters tall and 3 meter wide image. Now if... if uh, if that's exactly what it was, it was kind of a needle, right? It was like an obelisk, just a big, um, very narrow, but very tall image, uh, which if the whole thing was uh, a person, would be kind of weird looking. It's it's more likely that uh, this height uh, included some kind of large base that it was set up on, right? So maybe the base was 50, 60 feet high, and on the top of it was this huge uh, image, uh, probably in the shape of some human, right, uh, uh, or some person perhaps, um, what is it an image of? Well, we know it's covered in gold. So uh, whether the whole 90 feet is covered in gold or just the image of on top was covered in gold, we don't know. But it would have been spectacular, right? Uh, and it doesn't really say what it's an image of. It just says it's an image. Um, but because later he commands them to worship it, um, it, and because uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Ishak, and Abednego wouldn't bow to it, presumably it is the image of some kind of god, right? Uh, but I think it's, it's strategic, it's important that what it's an image of isn't really named because the focus isn't really on the image itself, right? It's not so much what it is. And it's possible that it also could have, could have been an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself, but um, the, the Babylonians didn't really consider their kings to be divine. Some, some did, but not the Babylonians. So they wouldn't have worshipped an image if it was Nebuchadnezzar's god. Um, uh, the, the real point is this, okay? The real significance of this image is that uh, they gathered to celebrate ultimately the accomplishment of King Nebuchadnezzar, right? That's what this is really about. It's not really coming to worship the god, right? And and as as the story unfolds, we see that Nebuchadnezzar is not concerned about Marduk or Baal or whoever the god is, that they give it appropriate worship. That's not the purpose of this celebration. It is very much focused on celebrating the accomplishment of Nebuchadnezzar, who had set up this image. And uh, the the phrase set up is actually mentioned nine times to make the point it's the thing that Nebuchadnezzar did. It was his accomplishment, right? Uh, uh, he is the one who had accomplished building this impressive thing. And it really was impressive, okay? To get a picture of this, it involved some impressive feats of engineering and technology, right? To make something 90 feet tall that didn't fall over. And you've got to remember, this was done in a day when they didn't have cranes and, you know, a lot of the machinery we, we have now. And there's a lot that other leaders and kings hadn't done even more impressive things. Uh, Certainly this is not one of the pyramids of Egypt. uh, But nonetheless it was impressive technology. And to have it forged and the the, the metal workers to forge it out of metal and have it plated with gold. um, It was impressive technology and engineering. Showing uh, the brilliance supposedly of Nebuchadnezzar. It was also an impressive display of wealth. And whatever size it was it was enough Gold, that it would have been, um, n- nobody would have said, oh, you bought this at, like, Walmart or Lotus, right? Big C. No, I mean, this was, like, expensive. And it was an incredible display of, of, of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's wealth, right? His wealth. Um, and most importantly, shining up there and in the, in glimmering in the sun, 90 feet up in the air, 27 meters. It, it just would have been an impressive and imposing sight. Right? And as you walked and got closer and closer and it towered up above you, there'd be the sense of like, wow, this is, this is impressive. This is impressive. And that was the whole point, right? Uh, not that it was giving glory to the gods, but it was saying, wow, this Nebuchadnezzar, he's impressive. Look what he did. Look what he set up. Look what he built. Right? And it was intended from beginning to end as an exercise in making him look good and impressive. Right? so what they're celebrating here is not the God uh, who or the image really but they're really celebrating the glories of King Nebuchadnezzar right and uh, why are they celebrating the glories of King Nebuchadnezzar well because he wants them to right he's the one who's orchestrating this okay so he's first of all the one who built something and, and made something to celebrate but secondly he 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 gathers the right crowd right worship for worship he really, really powerful, it takes a crowd, right? There's nothing, that's what I love about Sunday morning. When we all gather and we worship, it's just more powerful than when I sing off-key by myself, right? Uh, when I sing off-key with all of you, I, nobody knows, unless they leave my mic on and then you all hear me singing off-key, right? right? So uh, you've got to have the right people. So it says, then can be, then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the justices, the magistrates, all the officials, like all these important people, right? He gathered them. Um, so he had to have the right crowd, and this was not just anybody. These were a, an elite crowd of the most important, influential, powerful people in his kingdom, right? So this is not just anybody. Like these are big wigs, right? The most powerful. And, and um, uh, it's not so much by invitation as by expectation, Right? It's not like, well, if you all feel like you've got some time and you can make it, that'd be awesome. I don't think, I don't think that's quite how it went. It's like, no, you will be here. If you want to live and want to continue in your position, you will be here, right? So he gathers the crowd. And he assembles this outstanding orchestra. And I just love, uh, the writer of Daniel, makes it just kind of funny, right? He's got to name all these instruments, and we don't know what they all are, but there's an impressive collection of horns and pipes and lyres and tricons and harps and even a bagpipe. I don't know where they got the Scottish guy from, but they drug him in from somewhere, right? And what's a band without a, what's an orchestra without a bagpipe, right? I I don't know. So uh, it's this impressive orchestra, and no doubt the skilled and best musicians of the land and uh, uh, no doubt, uh, a very well-done performance. Because to make a good celebration and have real powerful worship, you've got to have an impressive band, right? So they got the impressive band to put on quite a show. Right? So all this should be... So this is an impressive scene. So imagine this scene. Here's this beautiful, towering, golden spectac- spectacle. This image This impressive. You've got this crowd, you're in this crowd of all these important people, the most important, powerful people in the land. And you've got this amazing orchestra performing. Surely that would inspire anybody to worship, right? Well, maybe it would, um, but Nebuchadnezzar is taking no chances, right? So he also gives them some incentive, some incentive to worship, right? Like, uh, we're going to gather, we're going to worship, the music's going to play, and you all are going to bow down in awe of what I have done, right? But, just in case you are a little doubtful, um, here's some incentive. Whoever does not fall down in worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So, so... I love this. I love the repetition here. Like, a furnace is like something that burns stuff, right? So do you really need to say it's a burning furnace? Well, I don't know. But it's not just a furnace. It's a burning furnace. And it's not just a burning furnace, but it's a burning, fiery furnace, okay? And, and just for dramatic effect, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had actually lit the furnace, right? So as the messenger is heralding this announcement, everybody sees the, the image, And then off to the side, plumes of smoke are billowing out of this raging furnace, right? So you get the picture here? Are you going to worship? (laughs) Yes, you are, right? And if you don't, boom, you become toast, right? So uh, that's some incentive, right? Uh, And I love this picture uh, of worship by command and threat, right? The goal here is to show loyalty and devotion to the king and his great accomplishments, but he's not stupid, right? He knows how human nature works, and he knows that people are not always that eager to celebrate someone else's accomplishments, right? We love to celebrate our own. We love it when people celebrate us. But human nature doesn't always want to celebrate the glories of somebody else, especially a king who they may or may not like, right? So he leaves nothing to chance, Right? He will be worshipped. He will be celebrated. Um, even if it means uh, by command on the threat of death. Right, And his plan works. Right? Verse 7, Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bike, pipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples and nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It works. Right? And, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is up on some raised platform, just seeing out the crowd, everybody bowing down worship, and he's feeling quite good about himself. Right? Uh, and it, it, he got what he wanted. Kind of, right? Kind of. Of course, everyone bowed in worship. Well, almost everyone, we'll see in a minute, not everybody. But they bowed in worship, and, and they gave tribute at least outwardly. At least outwardly. But uh, the reality is, um, real worship can't be forced, right? Uh, it can't be commanded. It can't be only because people fear the consequences or because they want to fit in with the crowd. Um, and if, if uh, Nebuchadnezzar had really reflected and considered what he had created here, it would be probably a little frustrating for him to know that most of those people were probably bowing, but only outwardly, right? It was just a show of doing what they had to. Um, And and this is how it works in the world, right? This is kind of the world system. Uh, Sin and selfishness has wired us to seek our own glory uh, and not so much the success of glory in others. And so the world (coughs) is constantly trying to manipulate people to get them to admire us, right? To convince them that we're worthy of it. And uh, oftentimes what we get is some outward, devotion, outward display of devotion and loyalty, right? People feel peer pressure. They do it because the crowd's doing it or because they've been manipulated or forced or conned into it. But it's not real worship, right? It's not, it's not genuine. It's not really from the heart. It's just an outward display. But for Nebuchadnezzar, like most people in the world, he has no idea that there's even any other kind of worship possible, Right? Because he's never encountered a God who's so amazing and awe-inspiring that you cannot help but worship him. He doesn't know that kind of God. And he's never met or encountered that kind of God. Well, that's not quite true. He did encounter this God once in chapter 2, right? But it's it's been a while and he has forgotten what true worship is, right? But that's about to change for Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, so the story continues on. So everybody, almost everybody worships. We find out that, um, that there were three who did not, who did not bow. So, right? so verse 8, Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously excuse, accused the Jews. They declared to the king, to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever, great and mighty king, we worship you. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, All right, so as it turns out, not everybody worshipped. There were three who didn't, and these uh, Chaldeans, these uh, officials, um, who come from the same working group as as Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're the Chaldeans. They're the wise men. They're the dream interpreters and the advisors of the king, and uh, they come with malicious accusations. Right? They are jealous of the Jews, of these three men, and probably Daniel as well. But Daniel. Uh, is not here. Right? We don't know why Daniel's not here, but th- th- this is not his story. Uh, but they're probably jealous of these guys because here's these young men who are 19, 20 years old who were captives of war and have been elevated to very high positions in the kingdom. And they, they don't like them. They're jealous of them. And they come with these three charges. They don't pay attention to you, king, which probably was not true. Uh, just given the character of these these men, they probably were very faithful servants of the king, very diligent in their responsibilities. Uh, But they said, they don't pay attention to you because they'd ignored his command. They don't serve your gods. That was true. (laughs) That was true. And they will not worship the image. Also true, right? Well, the king is furious. Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Now, get the picture here. Nebuchadnezzar has just spent a lot of time and effort and money on this party, right? He's made this very expensive image to worship. He's brought together this impressive orchestra, and he's brought together officials from all over his vast kingdom, which is huge, right? And he's gone to a lot of trouble, right? And it's mostly worked, like like everybody, hundreds of people there, maybe thousands, worshiping, bowing. Like so, so, so three people, so three people don't get with the program, right? It's okay. No, it's not okay right? for Nebuchadnezzar. He wants everybody, everybody in on the program. Like this, the success of this requires everybody's participation. If just three guys don't conform and comply, it's a failure. The whole thing is a failure, right? Total waste of money. Uh, and, and you, you find out here who, who this is really about, right? This is really being done for an audience of one. Right? This whole show is for Nebuchadnezzar. And he wants his money's worth. He's paid a lot. And he wants his money's worth. And these guys are wrecking it, right? This one sour note is wrecking the whole symphony. They're wrecking the whole thing. And he is furious. Right? He is furious. He is fuming mad. But uh, he's... He's, he's, he wants what he wants, right? So he's furious, but he's a bit focused here. And he, uh, he wants everybody's devotion and loyalty. So being the diplomat that he is, and you see something of the wisdom and the diplomacy of, of Nebuchadnezzar as a leader. When the three guys show up, he takes a deep breath. He calms himself, and he tries diplomacy. And he says, uh, verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Not a question they were supposed to answer, by the way. He says, now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, and the bagpipe, every kind of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And so this is he says, I'm going to give you one more chance. Maybe you didn't understand the instructions. Maybe, you know, you weren't paying attention when the music started and you just missed it. So here it is. I'm going to have the music play again. And you can bow and I will be happy and I will get what I want. But if not, just know that immediately you are going into the furnace. Right there. You are going in. Immediately. Right? And and then he says this amazing phrase. He says, and who is the, this is probably the dumb thing to say, right? Who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? Right? Who can save you from my hand? He is so convinced that he is the highest power and that there is absolutely no God anywhere who could rescue them from his mighty, powerful hand. Right? Uh, he knows uh, something of the God of the Jews because he encountered Daniel who interpreted his dream. Right? So he knows that the God of the Jews is a God who is powerful. But dreams are not the same as the power of the mightiest ruler on earth who can command the loyalty and devotion of an what seemed to him, the entire world, right? The entire world bowed at his feet. He commanded that kind of power. People did what he said. Surely there is no God who could possibly save them from a power like his. Right? But, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O king Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Okay, in other words, um, Sorry, king, we have no explanation. We're guilty. And no, we are not bowing. Right? Uh, we don't have to explain it to you. Right? We are not bowing. If this, uh, we have no need to answer. If this be so, our God, who, who is able, and they're answering that question, who, who, whose God is able? If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. He um, says, we, we, we admit our guilt. You know, we don't, we don't need an explanation. We'll, we'll fess up right now. We're guilty and, and, and you know, you, can, you don't have to play the music again because we're just telling you right out. We're not bowing to, to your God. Right? We're not bowing to this image. Um, we don't need a second chance. What's, uh, what's amazing here is that uh, Nebuchadnezzar wants the whole crowd to worship, and these guys are the only true worshipers. The problem is they're just worshiping the wrong thing in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, right? And they worship by not bowing, right? They show their loyalty and devotion to their true God, uh, the Most High God, and they honor Him by giving Him their absolute loyalty and devotion above everything, Right? Even by giving their lives as a sacrifice, right? Even by loving God more than their own life, even by being willing to, to die, they will not bow, right? And so, so it's, it's good to pause here and ask, how did they come to have this the deep devotion to God alone, right? Where did this come from? How is it that these three young men could, uh, at the very threat of death, knowing they're about to be chucked into a burning fiery furnace, <laughs> say, we'll die before we will bow, right? Where did that come from? Well, first of all, it's because they knew that they worshipped the true and living God, right? Uh, A God who had real power, and specifically, a God who had the power to save and to to deliver. They They said, look, our God is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king, right? They had this incredible faith in a God who is a deliverer. Well, where did this faith come from? Well, it came from this great history of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who for their whole history of Israel had been a God who was a deliverer. Right? And they saw this powerfully in the Exodus, right? the God who delivered them out of the Egypt, hand of the Egyptians. What's amazing is Deuteronomy 4.20 talks about the Exodus this way. It says, But the Lord has taken you, that is Israel, and brought you out of the iron furnace out of Egypt to be a holy people, uh, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Right? Uh, he was a God who had delivered the whole nation out of the iron furnace, the smelter of Egypt. Right? And uh, you can read many accounts throughout the, uh, Samuel and Kings and Chronicles of God delivering. But it's really spelled out most poetically and powerfully in the Psalms. And there are literally dozens of Psalms, dozens, that speak of God's uh, delivering Israel and King David. Here's just two, two, two examples. Psalms 18.46 The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. Right? David said, God is my deliverer and my rescuer. Psalm 56, again David says, For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in in the light of life. So certainly these men knew of these Psalms, dozens of these Psalms, that speak of God as a deliverer, the one who rescues from the grip of death and from enemies and from the violent man. Uh, So they had that track record with God. But also they had their own personal experience. We just saw in chapter 2, right? They were sentenced to be executed because nobody was able to give uh, Nebuchadnezzar his dream. And God delivered them by giving the dream and its interpretation to Daniel. Uh, So they had personal experience of this God who was able to deliver. Uh, And maybe they even knew uh, the very specific promise uh, mentioned in Isaiah 43, who would have written uh, before they they were exiled, and maybe they had read the prophecies of Isaiah. Isaiah 43.2 says this. This This is kind of crazy. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Oh, but they were banking on that verse. <laughs> it's like, I know this verse. And I'm, I'm hanging on to this verse, right? The fire shall not consume you. Right? So they trust in a God who is able they have this deep faith and conviction that they have a God who is more than able to deliver them out of the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar. This is nothing. This is nothing for God. He can do this. Um, but it's, it's, it, So they have this faith, right? They have this faith based on their history with God and, and how he has worked. But more than that, <coughs> uh, in addition to their faith, they also... Uh, submit to God's plan. They, they have faith and they have surrender. Right? And that's really what gives uh, their devotion its extreme edge. Because right? they say, you know, um, God is able, but 17, verse 17 continues on he, he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, but if not, <coughs> be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In other words, yes, God is able. We know God is able. But they don't assume this was God's purpose and will. And they surrender themselves and submit to the fact that God's plan and purpose may be the fire. It may be death. And they're okay with that. Because God is worthy of that kind of devotion. Right? Right? They don't assume they know God's plan. But it's okay. And they are devoted to God, even if it means suffering and death. Right? Because He is an eternal God who will judge all the earth, the living and the dead. And they know that not only is God able, but God is is powerful and God is judge. And one day they will stand before Him and they will have to give an account for their life. And God will judge them based on their faithfulness to Him, their loyalty to Him and their devotion to Him. And because they believe God is real, because they believe He's the God Most High and the God of eternity, they know they will stand before Him. And their devotion to God is more important than their life. God will deliver them. But if not, God will deliver them even in death. Right? He will deliver them in the end. So they could trust God no matter what. They had great faith, but they are also submitted fully to God's plan. And it's this combination of faith and submission that created in them unwavering devotion to God. Right? Do you believe God is able? Right? Do you believe God is able to do anything? That He can save you, that He can work out His purpose and plan in your life. Right? That's, that's the basis of our faith. God Most High is able that's maybe the easier one. The second one, though, are you surrendered to his purpose? <laughs> even if his purpose is really not your first pick. If his purpose and plan involves suffering and maybe even death. Right? Uh, are you devoted to God no matter what? Right. No matter what. That's the real issue. Um, and of course ultimately this kind of faith and submission is not something we generate in ourselves. Right? It's ultimately a work of Christ in us who is the perfect example of this kind of faith and submission. Right? We see this uh, in the temptations of Jesus when he was in the wilderness and Satan wanted to give him the kingdoms and wanted him to cast himself off the temple roof and uh, potentially die. And, and put God to the test and, and Jesus answered uh, the word says we shall we shall worship God alone you shall worship God alone but even more importantly we see it in in Matthew 26 in, in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus faced the greatest temptation and the greatest test of faith as he uh, was about to go to the cross and he prayed my father if it be possible let this cup Pass from me. God, if there's any way, please take away this cup. Right? Don't, don't let me face this, this death. Don't let me go to the cross. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Right? Jesus knew that God was more than able to take away the cross. When he said, is it possible? He doesn't mean, uh, God, could you do this? He knew God could do this. What he meant was, Is it possible to do this and still accomplish your purpose? If not, not my will, but yours be be done. Uh, Jesus had faith, but he in the end also had complete surrender to the purpose and will of God. And it is the very power of Christ that enables us to have this kind of devotion. It's not something we muster up in ourselves. It ultimately comes from the work of Christ in us. we see uh, that for these guys uh, this devotion and this faith comes at an extremely high price Uh, they do face the fiery trial then verse 19 Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury so he was mad before now he's like over the top angry filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach Meshach and Abednego so whatever, whatever kindness had been on his face, all of a sudden gets morphed. And now his face, you can just picture his face is one of rage and wrath and disgust and hatred and anger. His face is twisted up with all of that, right? And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Interestingly enough, uh, when you put God first and worship him, uh, it makes you an enemy of the world, and the world will hate you. And when you don't fit in and you stand out, uh, you will be persecuted. Uh, and and the king follows through with his threat, right? He hates them. He wants to destroy them. He can't kill them fast enough. Uh, and so he orders the furnace to be heated up seven times. And by the way, this furnace... Like, like what kind of furnace was this? it? Was most, most likely this furnace had been built as a smelter to smelt the iron and bronze and gold for the image, right? So it wasn't just a little little fireplace. It was probably huge, right? And there's actually pictures of this. You can Google it of, of similar smelters. It was probably taller than this building and it had steps or a ramp that, uh, that they would haul the ore up, ore up to the top in this opening and they would dump the ore into the smelter And uh, below is the fire, but it wasn't just a hot fire. If you know anything about smelting metal, it's not about just how much fuel, it's about how much air. And so you create these big billows that blow on the fire, and that's what makes it hot, right? So the guys are over there billowing, and he says, seven times faster, right? (laughs) They're getting that thing going as fast as they can, right? And that's what makes it hotter, right? So this is a a, fire. A fire, uh, smelters normally would would operate at a temperature of about 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. That's like a lot Celsius. I don't know what the math is, but it's really hot. Okay, seven times hotter. This is like melting metal, hot. Okay. And and, uh, they're bound, probably hands and feet, and the guards hoist them up and they walk up this ramp to drop them in. And it's so hot that as they drop the guys in, their clothes instantly ignite in flames. And you just get the picture of these guys running off in flames to their death, right? Uh, so, so it wasn't like this. is just a little fire. Like, you know, sometimes you could, like, walk on fire. Maybe they just got dropped in and could walk on fire. No, this is a crazy hot fire. Crazy hot, right? Their guards are incinerated. And they're dropped into the fire, right? Um, and, and the truth is, You know, we know the end of the story and we go, well, yeah, but they didn't die, right? They didn't burn. But they didn't know that, right? And as they're getting carried up, they're thinking, well, okay, God, now would be a good time for those angels to show up and beat up these guys. No angels show up. Now would be a time to send rain and put the fire out. No rain, no flood. And they get closer and closer and closer. And finally, as they're as their guards burn up in flame and they're dropped into the fire, what are they thinking? It's over. Right? It's over. I'm dropping to my death. Right? And the, the truth is, God does not actually deliver them from the fire. He does not deliver them from the fire. Uh, they, uh, in a very symbolic and almost real sense, they really are dropped to their death. Right? Uh, And God does not show up. And that's how it is sometimes, right? Um, Sometimes God will let us go through the trial. And that's exactly what happens to these guys. They must go through the trial. There is a cost. There is a price. And no matter how easy it was to say, we will not bow, uh, I'm sure when it came down to it, uh, it was not so easy, right? And I'm sure it was... It was uh, agonizing for these guys as they hold on to faith, wondering what is going to happen and convinced that it's over and they will meet God uh, in in the next life. But that's what they hold on to, right? That God will be with them even in death and they hold on to that faith. But of course we know that um, they fall to their death but they land on their feet, right? They land on their feet, they uh, and 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 the fire does not hurt them. Verse twenty four. Then King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, so by the way, these, this this smelter had this big opening on top where they would drop stuff in, but there were also windows or doors around where they would remove the firewood and clean it out, right? So so Nebuchadnezzar could see in. Uh, And he saw them land on their feet. And then Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose up in haste. And he he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered to the king and said, Yes, true king, three. I just want to make sure I didn't get the number wrong, right? He says, I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Right? So they land on their feet. The fire does not hurt them. And not only that, but God shows up. Right? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar declares, there, it's like it's like one of the gods. Uh, that's a way of saying, uh, a son of the gods, that's a, basically a way of saying this fourth person is divine. Right? He's a god. Uh, whatever he looked like we don't know, but uh, such was his image, such was this visage and, and countenance, that Nebuchadnezzar said, "This is a this is a god." Right. Later, he talks about the angel uh, who God sent to um, rescue them. Well, in Babylonian world, an angel was a god. Right. It was divine, uh, and certainly, I believe uh, that God met them and was with them. Right. Even in death, God is with them. And he's, he's, he's meeting them. And He's with them through this whole ordeal. Right? Um, and, and, and that's the great promise for us in this passage. Right? There is no promise that you will not suffer. There is no promise that you won't get dropped into the center of the fire. There is no promise that you will not have to deal with really hard things in life. But here is the promise. God will always be with you. Always. Jesus gives us assurance in Matthew 28.20 that Jesus himself says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So that is God, but God in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus the Son, is with us. Always walking with us. Even if it means death. Even there, Jesus will walk with us. And maybe there, most of all, Jesus will walk with us. And so they are delivered through the fire, right? They are delivered. Um, it says, uh, the king called to them, come out. Uh, uh, come out, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps and prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their clothes were not harmed, and no smell of fire had even come upon them. Right? Their hair wasn't even singed. Their, their clothes weren't touched. They were unmarked by the fire. The only evidence of the fire is that their, their chains, their, their ropes had been burned off. Right, They had been set free. Uh, they, they didn't even smell like fire, right? You ever, you ever been to a campfire and you go home and they know you've been at the campfire, right? Because that just sticks. Okay, They didn't even smell like the fire. Completely unharmed, right? And, and what we see is that they're not delivered from the fire, but they are delivered through the fire. Right? God walks with them through the trial, and in the end, he delivers them through the trial. Um. Why is it has to be that way, right? Why can't why why do, why do we have to actually go through the trial? I mean, if God's going to deliver us, why doesn't He save everybody the hassle and just do it before, right? I mean, if He's going to deliver us anyway, let's just avoid the trial altogether. Amen? Why do we have to go through the trial? Well, for this simple reason. Because it is our witness in the midst of the trial that demonstrates the glory of God to those around us. Right? there's something super powerful and more significant when God delivers us through the trial. Because right? notice what happens. Like, notice what their witness and the power of God that he displayed, notice what it does for Nebuchadnezzar. Right? We finally see in this passage the first true worship, right, uh, this is what Nebuchadnezzar wanted all along. But of course, he didn't know how to make it happen, but God knows how to make it happen. And Nebuchadnezzar himself worships God. It says in verse 26, And Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. This is amazing. Before it was, before it was who, who is the God who will deliver you? Now it's not a God. It is the Most High God. Right? It is the Most High God. He, re- he recognizes that this God is unique and there is none like him. He is above all gods and all kings. Right? And that's the first step of worship, is acknowledging the existence and power of the Most High God, who is creator and sovereign over everything. And then in verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Right? This is true worship. And what I love is this comes out of the mouth and heart of Nebuchadnezzar. Right? Right? Worship is the response of somebody who has met the Most High God and seen His glory and His power. And when you have encountered the true and living God, you cannot help but worship. Or you cannot help but be overwhelmed with His awe and greatness. Like the image, 90 feet tall, was impressive, but it was nothing compared to the majesty and wonder of the God of all creation. And when you meet this God, you cannot help but bow in worship. And Nebuchadnezzar, who thought he was everything, is a babbling little kid going, Wow! This God is amazing! He is able! Right? And that's the second part of worship. First is is acknowledging that He's the one and only true God. Second, uh, it's acknowledging that He is powerful. He is able to rescue in his words, there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Right? In fact, uh, he gets so fired up about this, he makes another decree. Right? He likes decrees. <laughs> he likes writing laws. He says, this is, I make this decree. Any people, nation, or language that speak anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. Also something that apparently Nebuchadnezzar likes, because that's kind of his favorite punishment. Like, if you don't have a fire, just tear people lip from limb. Right? For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Right? This is the God of true power. This is a God who can, who can rescue from the fire in, in miraculous ways. And that's the declaration of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and he says, don't mess with this God. Now, he doesn't command them to worship the God of Israel. He says, don't mess with us, God. Or we'll tear you limb from limb. Uh, We see that Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that this is a God who's worthy of worship. He is worthy to be honored. He is worthy to be praised. He is worthy of the kind of devotion that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego displayed. Uh, Because he not only worships God, but he is in awe of these men. And he understands it now. He gets it now, right? He says, uh, blessed be this God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because they trusted in him, and they ignored my command, and they yield up their bodies rather than serve and worship any other God except their own. That makes sense now, because I get who this God is. Such was their witness and their testimony. Um So that's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, we could end there, but I I just want to close with one last thought. And and the thought is this. Um, As we consider this story, uh, we come to the last verse of the chapter, and it says, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province. The word promote there means he prospered them. So we don't know if it means he gave them a raise, gave them a bonus, gave them a house, uh, gave them higher positions, or both. We don't know. But um, but basically, the way it ends is, and they all lived happily ever after. Right? And it's like, oh, that's such a great story. I love that. But then we live in our own life, and we go, but I'm not so sure that's my ending. Right? Uh, A lot of times, it doesn't feel like happily ever after. And we say, oh, yeah, that's all great that it worked out good for those guys. And, you know, God miraculously saved them, they didn't burn, and they got promoted, and God blessed them, and That's cool for them, but it just doesn't feel like that for me, right? It doesn't feel like God is delivering me. It doesn't feel like he is rescuing me. I don't know that I have that kind of faith, right? Um, How can we be like him, right? How can we stand firm like they did uh, when it feels like God maybe doesn't care, right? Well, um, let me just wrap this up with a couple of quick thoughts, right? First off, um, it's always easy to look at at a story when it gets wrapped up in one short chapter and we know the ending and say, well, sure, it was easy for them. But remember, uh, they didn't know the ending, right? And it wasn't always that easy. I'm sure when they heard the announcement and the proclamation and they knew... We can't do this. We can't bow. And the consequence is death. I'm sure it wasn't that easy. Right? And and all the way until they got dropped into the fire, right? It was not easy. Um uh, yeah, sure we know the end of the story, and it's like, well it all worked out for them, but they didn't know that. Right? Just like you don't know that, right? But there's two things that will help us stand firm in faith and in wholehearted devotion. And remember, that's the thing. These guys modeled both faith and wholehearted devotion. What God is asking of you in, in your fiery trial is to trust him and to have wholehearted devotion to him. Right? Here's two things you need to know. Right? Two absolute truths that I think will help us hang on. The first absolute truth that we can know, no matter what, is that Jesus is always with us. Always with us, right? No matter how it feels, the promise is that He will never leave us or forsake us. He will never abandon us. And sometimes it doesn't feel like He's there, but know that He is. Know that He is. Even in death, know that He is with you always, and he's walking with you side by side through the, through the fire. Or he's not watching from some distance. He is with you in the fire. And he knows what it's like because he went through the same fire, even worse. But he went through the fire of the cross. He knows. And he's walking with you through the fire. He is always there. Second thing you must know and hold on to is that he will never fail you, ever. Right. Now, sometimes his purpose is to take you through the trial. And sometimes that trial is very difficult. Sometimes it can be very painful. Sometimes it can kill you, right? But know that God will never fail you. He is a God who is able, and he is working out his good and perfect purpose. And if his purpose means death, he will not fail you in death. If his purpose means suffering, he will not fail you in suffering, right? He will deliver you. Maybe not when you want, but He will deliver you. Right? Know that. Know that He's never going to fail you or let you down. Right? In the end, you will see that His hand was with you working out His plan perfectly to the very end. Right? And, and, and in the end, this is real worship. right? To, to know God the Most High and to trust that he is able to deliver, and to devote your lives to him no matter the cost. Right? That's worship. And it stands in such amazing contrast to the forest uh, worship that Nebuchadnezzar tried to create. Right? He tried to make worshipers, and it didn't work. Right? This is real worship, Right? when we know the true and living God, and we believe in him, and we devote our lives to Him no matter what because we know He's real. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.